Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. We believe that with smart marketing, you can compete with the largest players in your industry. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'll be joined by John Grimshaw, and we're going to explore Facebook ad success without retargeting data. In a world where Apple and others are restricting the ability for us to track people that we send ad traffic from Facebook, how our strategy be rethought. That's what we're going to talk about today. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Instagram. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow the show so you do not miss any of our future content. Does using Google Docs, email, Dropbox, and Slack make your social media workflow clunky and painful to execute? Do you wish there was a better way to manage your client or stakeholder approvals for your Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube content? Your solution is Sked Social, the social media planning, scheduling, and collaboration platform for smart marketers. Here's what Sked does for you. Number one, Sked Social simplifies and automates the entire life cycle of your social content. It handles everything from one-click approvals to auto-posting your amazing content. Number two, store, organize, and schedule your images and videos all in one place. Skip searching through folders in the cloud and get right to what you need faster. Number three, search and track hashtags to find and showcase user-generated content. Number four, supercharge your Instagram strategy with in-depth hashtag analytics, expanded audience and stories insights, and comprehensive competitor reporting. Sked Social was built to streamline your team, client, and influencer processes. 10,000 brands and agencies trust Sked Social. Start your extended 14-day free trial by visiting skedsocial.com slash SME. And if you like what you see, you'll save 50% on your first month with Sked. Again, visit skedsocial.com slash SME. You support this show by checking out our sponsors. And now for this week's interview with John Grimshaw. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by John Grimshaw. If you don't know who John is, you need to know who he is. He is the chief marketing officer for Smart Marketer, an education company that helps 
Equip Marketers with the Latest in Digital Marketing. He's also the co-host of the Smart Marketer Podcast, which I strongly recommend if you're looking to listen to another show. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, long-time listener, first-time call-inner. Happy to be here. (laughs) Super exciting to have you. So today, John and I are going to explore Facebook advertising in a data restricted world set another way in a Apple world and eventually a Google world (laughs) where all of a sudden it's harder for us that are advertising to do remarketing and other types of marketing. But before we go there, uh, John, I would love to explore your story a little bit. How did you get into marketing and then ultimately into Facebook ads? Yeah. Talk to me, go wherever you want to go. Awesome. Well, I am excited to share a little bit of this. I think I have an interesting enough backstory. And like any good story, it starts with a country music song. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> when I graduated from high school, I was planning to become a radio DJ ah. where I was pursuing my interests. And I actually worked for about 12 months at a radio station doing country music. So I learned all about the classics because it was old school. Uh, but this was around 2008, 2009, and the iPhone had just released. And as time went on, I started to become a little concerned about that career opportunity in a world where we didn't just have iPods, but we also could connect to the internet and stream live music or watch YouTube on our phone. The career choice seemed less and less solid. So I kind of pulled back from that when I was in school and started studying just general communication with a focus on technology. Because you probably don't realize this, but Being a radio DJ requires you to learn how to use about 15 different kinds of software and two or three different machines. And so it's a lot more button clicking, lever pulling than you might usually expect. You know, you'd think you grab a mic, pop in a CD and hit play, but it takes a lot of technical know-how. And I found that was something I enjoyed. And so I really went deep on communication and technology. And my senior thesis was actually on QR codes, which has been really interesting in the last 12 months to watch them go from kind of a fringe tool to sort of front and center as we're all being more aware of social distancing and no more menus at every restaurant. And so it's it's right. fun to see some of the stuff I wrote about come to fruition, but I was not. Fascinating. Yeah. I remember QR codes had their day and then they didn't have their day and now they seem to be having <laughs> their day again. And they're all, I don't even think people call them QR codes anymore. Maybe they do, but it seems like they, you know, there's so many of these quote unquote codes and scans and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that's exciting. So, so what'd you do with that degree? What, what kind of degree? You got a degree in communications, it sounds like, right? Yep. Communication studies, which is kind of like the philosophy of communication. But I did a lot of practical work with companies, diving into software and working with CRMs. And so when I graduated, I went straight into marketing role. I worked for an app company for a few years. And it's funny, we were just talking about uh, roles like marketing manager Uh, being very variable. And I was the marketing manager for this app company, but it was kind of a one-man show. So they gave me a bigger title so I would work for an extra 10 or so hours each week. (laughs) And it worked. But hey, I learned a lot there. But I really think I kind of figured this whole thing out, or rather it clicked for me when I started working at Digital Marketer. I went there in, it was either late 2014 or early 2015 to manage their email marketing. Ah, okay. Brian Dice and Molly Pittman and all those folks were there, I would imagine, when you were there, right? Yep. Yeah, I, it was really kind of the beginning of Molly's uh, rise to fame, which has been very fun to watch. She and I are very close. Um, but yeah, so working for Ryan and Molly, and it was great. It was. I think the c- company has an amazing grasp on the sort of core concept of how to hook somebody in uh, with a marketing message. Um, and it was fun to work there. You know, it's a really 
fast-paced company. It was pretty small at the time. I think we only had 10 or 15 employees mm. that were full-time. And so it was a very tight-knit crew. It also meant a lot of people wore a lot of hats. So in my first year or so there, I kind of realized that analytics and data was maybe an area that somebody could go deeper, right? We had a traffic person, that was Molly. We had an email person, that was Richard Linder. We had some content people, we had people across the board, but nobody was really getting into the numbers. And I, shockingly enough, I'm kind of a math geek. And so I said, hey, you know what? This is something I think I can kind of make my mark and carve out a space for myself. So I really went deep for two or three years while I was there, building out their analytics department and focusing primarily on how to use data to scale customer acquisition. And once we have the customer, to boost their lifetime value. So I've really spent a lot of time diving into how numbers and funnels and all these kind of data points that we use to run ads or send emails work together to get people to buy and keep them buying again and again. And that is why I actually have worked so closely with Molly. She and I have been working together since Digital Marketer up until the present day because she's kind of a, a right brain creative type and I'm a little bit more of a left brain analytical type. And so together we uh, <laughs> kind of activate the wonder twin powers. Yeah. And I love it because I do listen to your podcast and you guys, when you come together, kind of provide two different perspectives. I personally love the analytical perspective. I try to live as much as I can every day inside of uh, Google Analytics and into, uh, you know, Google Optimize and all these other kinds of tools that I'm sure you're intimately familiar with. So when did you take the job at Smart Marketer? Yeah. So I left Digital Marketer, I think it was 2018. And I worked as a freelance consultant with Molly and I and a third partner for about two or three years. Mm. I guess about two years, just my timeline always gets a little fuzzy. Uh, but we started working with Ezra and it was going really, really well. He was running Smart Marketer at the time, but he also runs Boom, an e-commerce brand and Zipify. We should say Ezra Firestone for those that don't know. Who Ezra oh, yeah, is. Sorry. Yep, that's okay. Keep going. <laughs> he has one of those names. Yes. Ezra Liberty Firestone, actually. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but he had three brands he was running, and Smart Marketer was honestly the smallest of the bunch. It had been around, I think, the longest, but it wasn't the one that was getting the most of his time and attention. And so we worked together for a year or a year and a half on kind of a contractual basis. And in March of 2020, right before all the coronavirus stuff started, Ezra said, hey, John, Molly, I would love for you to do, you two to come in and run Smart Marketer as the CEO, Molly, and CMO, me. And we said, hey, that sounds amazing. We have been hoping for a way to work more with you because he's a pretty fun guy to work with. So we kind of took the reins of the company uh, back in 2020, and it was tough sledding for the first few months because it yeah, was... Yeah, that's a really hard time to take over... <laughs> division or if you will, a you know, an, an entity, right? How it was yeah. really hard. It was tough. It was tricky to kind of find our footing because when you teach people and you know this as well as anybody else, you feel a level of obligation to kind of be ahead of the curve. Right. But I don't know if there really was any way to be ahead of the curve with the Corona stuff. We just didn't know how it was going to shake out. So we tried a few things in the first few months that eh, worked okay, but didn't kind of change the game. But we sort of found our footing uh, we launched Smart Traffic Live and we ended up growing the company 35% in that first year, which is awesome. And we're actually poised to do at least the same amount of growth this year, which feels pretty great. And it's a fun company to work at. Facebook ads is a big part of your customer acquisition strategy, right? 
Yeah, I think that's really where we kind of have uh, planted our flag as the starting point is Facebook ads, because it's, of course, Molly's kind of core competency for doing and for teaching. So we really, really built out our product line around paid ads, uh, which, of course, meant we had to stay sharp. And it's nice because working there, we get to see inside of Smart Marketer, obviously, but also inside of Boom, which is an e-commerce company, and inside of Zipify, which is a SaaS company. So we have a very well-rounded perspective on what's working right now in paid advertising for all three brands. And it's been really great. Dive back in and kind of see what we can do. And it's been a lot of experimentation, especially in the last nine or so months, which I know we're about to dive into. But it's taken a lot of playing around with offers and copy and creative to make things work. But the good news is, is I think we've really kind of hit on the the crux of it, the idea that really strong copy creative and offers that's really focused around the customer is the key to success today. And I'll give you guys some feedback on the data side, uh, some some insight on attribution models. But I think at the end of the day, Facebook ads right now are looking good uh, and really not as scary as they seem as long as you guys have really strong chops, uh, guys and girls, when it comes to the storytelling and the writing and the the visual aspect of it, which I would imagine most of your listenership is very, very strong with. So just to clarify, um, Smart Marketer is an info company, right? You're basically selling training and knowledge, not unlike Social Media Examiner. Boom Social, I believe Azra has disclosed, I think you guys did 30 plus million dollars in the last year or something like that. And that's more of a uh, targeting women over the age of 50 with cosmetics related products, if I'm not mistaken. And then Zipify is a uh, ASP application it's software ongoing revenue model, right? Is that correct? Do I have all that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we see three very different business models and what's working, right? Because what we're doing on Smart Marketer, there's some similarities, but it's fundamentally different than what we're offering with Boom, right? Because that's makeup and it's mascara and it's blush. Right. Uh, a little bit different than a course on Facebook ads or a course on email marketing. But you're in a unique position where you get to see it all yeah. correctly, right? So you have that perspective to give today to probably almost anyone who's going to be running Facebook ads because you cover such a wide gamut of different kinds of products inside of the the bigger entity, which is the Ezra empire. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. So let's talk about, you know, a lot of people right now are feeling a little uncertain about the future with Facebook ads, especially in light of all the privacy changes that have been going on. Yet you guys seem to be all in on Facebook ads. So what do you want to say to marketers right now who are not sure whether there's room for their business objectives with Facebook ads? Why should they still consider it? Yeah, that's a totally fair question. And I am I'm very bullish on Facebook. So I'll tell you kind of why Facebook ads in general. For people that haven't made the leap yet, I think it's the time. And why today is a good time for Facebook ads. But I've been working with or as a media buyer kind of in every position you can have, right? I've been an employee. I've educated people about Facebook. I've owned businesses using Facebook ads. And I have not found a better scaling tool in the last six or seven years than Facebook ads because you can target for affinity, right? You're targeting not around need or urgency, but you're targeting around, hey, who is a great fit for this service or product or course or whatever it might be? Who is a great fit for this? 
And when you start to get to understand kind of how your product or service changes someone's life, you can get massive scale because you can sell that transformative experience and Facebook can put your ads in front of something over a billion people now. (laughs) It's one of the easiest ways I have found to buy customers, which is always one of those sort of cognitive dissonance phrases. But when you dive in and look at the, the number side of it, it really can work out that way. With Boom, for example, we spend somewhere between 40 and $60 typically to acquire a new customer who's worth on average for us about $80 uh, with their first purchase. So we're able to spend money on advertising, make more than we're spending, and go out and acquire new customers. And then, of course, we have amazing systems that convert people on the back end with email, share other products that are a good fit if they align with the messaging and the sort of core focus on sustainability and clean ingredients that Boom has. And so it becomes a really powerful tool to grow a business. You know, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, uh, my guess is you're probably not making a lot of money on that first transaction. You might even be losing some money, but the idea is you know what the lifetime value of a customer is, right? Because you know that that Boom social customer likely is going to come back and buy something else when they've gone through your product. And thus, it's worth spending 50% of your, if you will, revenue to acquire the customer in the first place, because I would imagine the alternatives could be very expensive, right? Am I close to accurate on that? And and do a lot of marketers need to be thinking, especially if they've got a replenishable product in the case of cosmetics, they've got to be thinking about acquiring a customer for the long run, which might mean they might need to lose a little bit of money right out of the gate, knowing full well that if their product is so good that they're going to have that customer purchase more products or if they can build a back-end email sequence to do upsells and cross-sells and all that kind of stuff, that's how they can maybe make it work. Am I accurate on that? Yeah, you got it exactly right. When I first kind of discovered this system, it just blew my mind. It's like, wow, this is the thing I've been trying to figure out for a couple of years. And it has really worked in every business I've plugged it into. And the beauty of it is you have what I kind of call fast versus slow traffic. Fast traffic is the paid traffic because you just say, hey, Facebook, I want to spend $1,000 today or I want to spend $500 or even $20 today. So you're able to turn it up and down as you see fit. And when you kind of dial in the offer you're making and the ads you're using, you can do this at essentially break even. You're exactly right. That's what you want to shoot for is breaking even with your front end acquisition. That buys you the time and the customer base that you can use to invest in slower traffic channels. Things like a podcast or a blog or communities where you start to build relationships with the customers and sell them more of the same product for cosmetics, for example, or related products. Or maybe if you're a business like Zipify, you keep them in your subscription for a while, right? People keep using the landing page builder that Zipify has. And over time, their average value increases because we acquire the lead and acquire the buyer with paid traffic. And then we keep them warm and in the community with great content, with engaging related you know, offers and ways to help them succeed and do more with it. And that is, I have found the name of the game. So if you want to build a business and you want to do something like a podcast or a blog, using the paid traffic lever, the fast traffic lever, you can actually bring in new customers and new money while growing the business and investing in those slower growing things like content and community. Love it. Okay. So bringing it back to Apple, what's 
the changes. I'm sure a lot of people listening by now have heard a lot about what's going on with Apple, but what is changing with privacy and Apple and what does this really mean for marketers? Because maybe some people haven't really wrapped their mind, specifically related to Facebook ads. Like how is Apple's decision to essentially restrict, if you will, information, how is that impacting what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. So <laughs> Apple has been swinging wild. Last year, they announced iOS 14, the new operating system that rolled out all these big changes to Facebook with this kind of privacy-centric messaging, right? Apple said, hey, we're going to protect consumer privacy by restricting what different apps can use to target and sell to customers. And Facebook is a iPhone app as much as it, as it is anything else. Right. Uh, iPhone traffic is somewhere between 30 and 50% of most websites' traffic. So this change on the iPhone affected everything else they were doing. They had to change their entire advertising model to make it work. So the idea was that Apple wanted to protect consumer privacy by basically saying, hey, you're not able to use as many ads. You're not able to send people to as many domains. You're going to have more limits on your ability to attribute purchases or opt-ins or whatever it is you're tracking with Facebook ads to attribute those back to the ads because customers want to be able to opt out. And that has been the big change for marketers. It's really hurt technical marketers who were having a lot of success because they could think of advertising as a math problem, which you would think would be my own model. But I'll get into in a little bit why I'm not so worried about this change. But, but it's been really hard because a lot of people said, okay, I can spend this much money on Facebook and it'll always be this much output and I need to create 10 new ads every month. That's all I do. Well, that transparency as far as Facebook's performance is gone. And the consistency of the performance has really dropped. And the reason that I believe this is all happening is not so much that Apple is concerned about privacy. I don't think they don't care about privacy, but I don't think that's their main motivation. Because Apple's biggest competitors are Facebook and Google, two companies that monetize almost entirely with advertising. Right. And Apple is instead a product company. So Apple has found a way to hurt its biggest competitors who mainly monetize through advertising by restricting the data that their platform has. And I think, we don't know for sure, but I really think the kind of next step for Apple is to start rolling out more Apple ads. I think this is step one of a process to make Apple have its own really extended ad network, right? Right now they have their App Store ads and that's kind of all that they've got in that space. Uh, and if you really dive into the iOS 14 changes, primarily apps are punished, right? There are more limits on what apps can do with Facebook advertising. There's a different API. <laughs> There's all these changes that really, really hurt anyone that was marketing an app on Facebook. Those of us that are selling products or services or have websites, we're kind of an afterthought almost. What Apple really seems like they were trying to do was say, you can't really run Facebook ads for mobile apps anymore. Or if you do, it's going to be very expensive. And that's one of the big reasons that I think this is part of a, a larger plan for Apple to shift their, their overall strategy. Well, and for those of you that are not app providers, I mean, the key thing is with, when someone is on their mobile phone, right? And they're using 
any particular browser, right? It doesn't really matter because every app on the phone is going to prompt you to give tracking permissions. And all the data I saw shows the majority of people say, no, do not track me, you know, ask not to track. So what this means from your perspective, the marketer who's listening right now is that when someone visits your product and you don't know who they are, it used to be very easy to just throw a Facebook ad up there to remarket to them. But now that's becoming harder, right? Yep. It's becoming functionally very difficult, if not impossible, without really back-end kind of strange things. But today it's the iPhone, but tomorrow I think you and I both know it's going to be the Mac, right? Because everything that starts on the iPhone eventually works its way to the Mac. So I wouldn't be surprised if, and and by the way, John, I mean, you know, they just recently announced they're also going to stop email tracking. You saw that (laughs) one, right? I mean, that that freaked me out a little bit because the data shows that 40% of all emails come from Apple Mail whether it be desktop or mobile. And they're going to stop those pixels from firing that shows whether the email was opened or not, right? So Apple is is riding a trend right now, which is a mega trend, right? Which is privacy. And it started with mm-hmm. GDPR and then the California stuff and everything else. It, it's a big trend, right? And Google was going to do you know their thing and then they've decided to delay it till 2023 or something like that. But it seems as if the days of marketers having access to if you will, generic data through remarketing are kind of changing. Would that be a fair assessment? In a pretty radical way, right? 100%. And that means we need to rethink how we do what we do, right? Yep, that's exactly right. So that's a perfect transition into my next question, which is how in the world should we as marketers respond in a world where we are going to have less information? about the non-known customers, about the generic drive-by viewer, if you will. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I can't think of a better word, but how do we respond in a world where we don't have data, John? How have you wrapped your head around this? I know you've come up with some thoughts on this. I would love to <laughs> love to hear what you think. Yeah. And it's, it's tough because data is my wheelhouse. It's the thing I think is most fun to play around in and, and explore. And so it felt like a personal affront initially saying, hey, what are you guys doing with my data? But I've come around to you know, leaning into it and saying, you know what, I think this was, you're right, a mega trend, a macro trend. It was unavoidable. Uh, And so we need to adapt, right? Sticking your head in the sand and saying, "Hmm, maybe this will go away in a year or two is probably the worst move you could make. Mm. And I'll kind of dive into my, my frame of thought, but I will just say, I know a lot of people have been struggling in the last two or three months, especially. But I have seen with the kind of rethinking we've been doing, We've still been able to go out and buy leads for $3 and $4. We bought just last month for a new product launch we did. We bought about 8,000 leads for, I want to say, 360 on average. So the costs for us look about as good as they did two, three years ago. Hmm. And boom, the, the e-commerce platform has been having a little bit more trouble, but still they've been able to keep the cost per acquisition around 60 bucks, which is the high end of their acceptable range. So if you kind of implement these strategies and, and rethink this, you still can have a lot of success with Facebook. So you need to change two big things. You need to change your strategy, the way you think about Facebook ads, and you need to make a few tactical changes, especially around the remarketing stuff. But I think the strategic changes are, of course, the way to start. Uh, if you don't figure out your strategy, if you don't map it out, you never know when you're getting where you want to go or when you're lost in the middle of the ocean. Mm. And that's kind of the big idea is you need to decide what success looks like and how you're going to measure it. 
we have grown, we, myself included, uh, got a little bit lazy with the Facebook ads platform because it was a very generous model that was pretty consistent. So if you went out and spent $1,000 on Facebook and made 2000 you could more or less assume if I go out and spend $10,000, I'm going to make about 20000 right? You could just roughly say, well, okay, it's pretty consistent. It's working this way kind of when I scale it up or scale it down. So I'm just going to use Facebook because it's got this really wide attribution model. But to succeed today, we have to get away from this idea that there is a single source of truth. There is more than one way to measure success. Attribution is one of the things that uh, analysts love to have a beer or two and argue about for two or three hours <laughs> because there's so many different ways to credit a sale. Should the sale be credited to the first marketing interaction someone has, right? The first ad they see, or should it be credited to the email that they open right before they actually buy? And it's, it's really debatable. There's not one right way to do it. And with Facebook having so many issues with Apple's new changes and Facebook even has sort of internal inconsistency because they're still trying to roll out patches to fix and repair the data. So week to week and month to month, the data in Facebook ads platform is not there for us to make smart decisions with as marketers, as media buyers, as anyone that jumps in and look at the data. So we have to dip back into the bag of tricks that our predecessors used, right? People have been advertising since way before the internet existed. I love that you said this because there was a day before remarketing and there will be a day after remarketing, right? Yep. <laughs> Keep going. I love where you're going with this. So yeah, we're, we're going to be jumping in the DeLorean and going back in time to look at some older ad models, right? Ways that we can say, is this ad working or not? That is the key to kind of making this work. And so... I have for you four different models that we can use to give credit to our advertising in 2021, 2022, 2022, hard to say on, <laughs> on the mic and beyond because it's not so much about a specific piece of software. It's not so much about Facebook ads versus Google ads. It's much broader and it looks, based on everything I've read about the changes, pretty sustainable. I love it. So I've got four models. Let's hear it. We're going to look at how commercials are credited, how billboards are credited for success, how coupons are credited, and how businesses with really long sales cycles like cars or mattress shops think about this. Cool. So when you think of a commercial, there's a few different ways they can do targeting. They can target by location, they can target by channel, and time of the day. And commercials are essentially 15 to two minute video ads, right? Just like you could run on Facebook ads, except they are on TV, <laughs> the original social network. There you go. And they're disruptive. Yep. Just like Facebook. Exactly. So what has been being used for so long is this idea of having different calls to action. And I don't just mean by now or by tomorrow. I mean, the idea of having a unique phone number was the original way they do it, or now having a unique URL, right? A unique web page that you send traffic to that's tied back to a specific channel or a specific location in the country. And you're able to map whatever commercial it is you're running back to the sales. So you say, okay, we had a thousand sales today out of 10,000 visits to this specific URL, or we sold 200 of this product and we had 
800 phone calls to this number. So you can actually go back with a unique URL or a unique phone number and figure out exactly how many people called that number or visited that page and how many purchases came from that. And that is all very privacy independent. None of those questions or, or elements really run into any of these limitations coming on us, right? I want to ask you a question because I know people in the audience are probably thinking about this, but what about the fact that Google Analytics is not firing 100% of the time anymore? Therefore, I don't know the true number of individuals that are hitting my my page. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that is a very fair question. Because that is being restricted, you know what I mean? So obviously, it's just another one of those things that are being, if you will, repressed by all these ad trackers and all that stuff that's out there, right? Yes. And it. I will say, I think it's been the least affected. Google Analytics uses first-party cookies, right? which... You know, the cookie discussion is never anybody's favorite because it's not chocolate chip or macadamia. But right. the thing that's really being restricted primarily is third party. Right. And the ones that Google Analytics uses are first party. And so you're right. There are definitely some places that it's being restricted, but it represents of the percentage total a pretty small amount. So I have not seen in kind of my personal roadmap that I'm using to say, how am I updating my data strategy? A big impact in the next five years to Google Analytics, right? There's a little bit of drop off. You're not wrong at all, but it's not going to be anywhere near what we've seen with Facebook. And pushing to things like phone number, you know, literal calls, <laughs> those are easy enough to track because how many times did the phone ring? And it's just that idea of you want to really have a unique place. It doesn't have to be even a URL, right? It doesn't have to be something you track with Google Analytics, but having a unique call to action that is only tied to a specific ad you can then go back and say how many people came to that uh, or came to whatever we have, our site or our lead ad or our phone number and how many people ultimately took an action. Very cool. I like that concept. I mean, in concept, what I'm hearing you say is if you think about the commercials you see on television today, they'll have a unique website that will often redirect you, right? Like a unique URL that you would go to, or they'll have a normal website with a slash at the end of it. And then we'll have a, a word after it or something like that. Right. Yep. And I would imagine they're tracking how many hits are getting redirected. And that's going to give you at least some sense of traffic source up against conversions. Right. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yep. That's exactly right. And it's, it's a big picture trend, right? This is a good way to think about, okay, we're running this particular ad that's more of a story and this particular ad that's more of a product demonstration. You don't necessarily want to have a unique URL for every single ad, but for big picture campaigns, for different offers, having unique URLs is a great way to go in and do this kind of testing because it's more or less immune, maybe not immune, but it's as minimally impacted as it can be from all the privacy changes today and the privacy changes that we see coming in the next three or four years. Can we trust if Facebook is delivering the link that they're going to adequately track it? Do you understand where I'm going with that? Like they'll know exactly how many people have clicked on the link, right? And you can match that up against what Google Analytics is telling you, I would imagine, right? Yes. Okay. I feel very good about that because if you look at unique outbound click in Facebook, that tells you how many times somebody clicked a link that took them to a different website. And Facebook gets to track that kind of no matter what. It's not tied to an individual. Yeah, that's their first party. It's yeah. just how they bill you. And so it's not a, oh, you know, Joe in Tennessee clicked this or, or Dave in New Mexico clicked this. It's there were 67 clicks right. and 67 of those clicks went to a web page. And there's only one web page you can get to from this ad. And so that is a very 
reliable. The world yeah. is not permanent, but it's yes, reliable. There you go. That's the perfect word. It's a reliable way to to measure the click. So I feel very, very good about that looking forward. So commercial. And then what's the next model? So the next model is billboard, right? Times Square style. And these are all about location. And it's one of the harder ones to kind of wrap your mind around, right? It feels like something that somebody that just got $2 million in seed funding says, hey, let's put up 50 billboards all around, you know, San Francisco, <laughs> which may or may not be a good investment of marketing dollars, right? Typically, people that get a big cash infusion don't worry too much about that. Uh, but what's tricky is that they don't often have a direct call to action because there's not a lot of room for copying creative and having a long URL on a billboard. That's uh, not something that a lot of people are going to be typing into their phone. So the way to track sales from billboards, right, or this particular attribution model is to think about exposed and unexposed populations of people. If hmm. you put a billboard up in Austin, Texas, or yeah, you put up 10 billboards in Austin, Texas, you wait two, three months, you dive into your CRM or your, your platform where you're tracking sales, and you can look at the credit card data, not at the individual level, right? We're not diving into looking at numbers, but you can say, oh, this credit card is an Austin, Texas one. This is a Santa Fe, New Mexico one. And you can use that to compare sales from populations that have the billboards and those that don't. So again, this is kind of that macro level thinking. It's like a branding play really, right? Exactly. So from a Facebook ads perspective, what might this mean just to contextualize this a little bit? So in Facebook ads, we may lose some of that sort of individual targeting where you can go in and say, eh, this person lives in this city. Uh, but we are going to keep the broad ability to say, I'm going to target St. Louis. Look how many cities I can name. I'm very impressed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we keep that macro level data. And so you say, all right, I'm going to run this brand new Facebook campaign only targeting people in the state of Texas. And at the end of the campaign, you know, let it run for a month or so. You dive in and say, okay, how many sales was I getting in Texas on average before we launched this new initiative? And how many sales am I getting in you know, New Mexico? And compare the lift in the two different states. And if you see that Texas has gone up by about 15% in total sales, you can say with a fairly high degree of confidence that your ad drove a lift, right? It drove a 15% increase in sales. And, you know, if you had a secret media appearance, that's obviously going to skew it. There's a few factors that push the scales one way or the other, but it gives you a good broad sense and the ability to go back and credit your ad spend and say, okay, we think this ad spend drove this many units. And it works pretty well on a city level too, right? So this is not only for people that can spend, I don't know, half a million dollars on Facebook ads, right? If you're in a small town operation, you're a pool company in Texas, uh, you know, you're in Austin and you want to target San Antonio, you can kind of go in and see, even at that smaller city to city level, how this works. Because you're just saying, we made a media buy in this region. And then we looked at the end of the media buy at how many more sales came in from that region than we were expecting otherwise. And it lets you go back and say, okay, Facebook deserves credit for 10% of these, right? So maybe that's, uh, we recovered 1.5 times the amount of money. I love it. Okay, so we've talked about commercials and billboards. What's next? All right, the next one is probably the most obvious one, but I think people forget about its power. It is the coupon. And the idea is there's a lot of variety that can come with a coupon. But I think the place to look to sort of model this off of is restaurants who have really gotten coupons dialed in 
as a way to evaluate their marketing efforts because they had this challenge of we have people that we're advertising to online, but all the conversions are taking place offline, right? So restaurants and anywhere with a, a physical location, they've been dealing with these attribution problems since, you know, <laughs> as long as I can ever uh, look back. Right. So the coupons were a great way around it. And it's similar to the, the commercial idea. The idea that you can have unique coupons that connect to specific offers. And this is one that I have tested relatively recently. I wish I had the, the numbers in front of me. But, but the idea of saying like, okay, we're going to use for this marketing campaign a 10% off coupon with this URL or, or rather this specific coupon name. So whenever anyone buys with this 10% off coupon, we can directly point back to the Facebook ad where the coupon is used because we didn't put the coupon on our site. We put it only in a Facebook ad and it was only for people that saw the ad could anyone have found it. So it's a great way to credit back to Facebook without having to worry about does the cookie data get passed or this or that or the other. You just say, hey, we had this unique coupon, which was, you know, social media examiner rocks. And we saw it got used 67 times. And so we know all 67 of those sales, that person saw the Facebook ad, interacted with it and decided to buy. It doesn't matter if they bought tomorrow or if they bought right when they saw the ad or two weeks later, because you know that was only in the one place. Fascinating. And I would imagine, I don't know, I haven't seen too many ads with coupons in it, but I would imagine if you put a coupon in an ad, they're probably going to take a a screenshot of it or they're going to print it if they're on a computer, right? And that might serve as like harder to track because they might use it later. But I would also think that it also is harder. There's got to be a lot of unattributed sales to coupons because my guess is maybe the coupon for some people is such a good deal that they're, that they're going to do something to save it, but they eventually buy without the coupon anyways. You know what I mean? And as a result, I would imagine when you were at TNC, this probably happened a lot when you guys were promoting your event, right? You've got all these coupons, but sometimes people can't find the coupons and they buy it anyways for the higher price. I would imagine it could be a pretty effective form of marketing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, that's sort of the general halo effect of Facebook advertising, really any kind of advertising is you catch somebody's attention and excitement and interest and they don't take action today. Well, two weeks later, they say, ah, shoot, you know what? This was on my to-do list and I missed it. I'm just going to buy it now. And you may not be able to directly credit that sale, but with the coupons, you're going to get a good percentage. And as long as you're profitable uh, with the coupons, right? You know, if you say we spent $100 and made $200, well, anybody else that buys without the coupon that might have come from that, hey, that's just, uh, you know, the cherry on top. I'm looking at a restaurant ad in my (laughs) deck right now with a a pizookie with a cherry on it. So very timely. (laughs) Let's talk about the longer sales cycle, right? There's a lot of people selling expensive or complex products that people don't make an impulse buy on. What's the process for tracking in those situations? Yes. And this is definitely the trickiest one, but I will say it's the one that I do most often because I sell a lot of trainings that are higher dollar and require you to sit and think about it and talk to your business partner. So the idea is that there's so much variance in how you're targeting with these and what kind of copy and what kind of creative and the price. There's a lot of variability that you just, it's a feature, it's not a bug. Um, The challenge is that so often people say, hey, let's run some Facebook ads to get somebody to go buy a Ford, right? Say, okay, we're going to spend I know cars are expensive. We're going to spend $100,000 on Facebook ads to get people to go buy a Ford. 
Well, even before all these iOS changes, it was pretty darn hard to go back and say, was that $100,000 well spent? How many cars do we think we sold from that? It's hard to say because it was just pictures of people driving around and looking rugged. Right. Well, the secret and, and the way that you can really unlock this is you need to change not your advertising strategy so much as your offer. You need to kind of rethink the way that you uh, approach this and create a earlier stage offer to catch customer details. And this has been, I think, the biggest impact I have seen in, in my career and marketing for the businesses I worked with is realizing that, hey, what I should do is run ads that are going to capture an email address. Mm. And I'm not going to focus on making money with capturing those email addresses, right? I'm going to say, I want to go out and get email addresses for three or $4. That is my goal. That is what I'm focusing around. And then I will have a follow-up campaign with email and I'll have some remarketing ads and I'll have, you know, webinars and additional touch points that come down the line that focus more on the sale. But you can add as many middle steps as you want to. And the beauty is at the end, when somebody buys, what I do is I go back and say, okay, we had 200 buyers of this course and we're going to go back and look at what was the first touch point that they had in our CRM, right? So you go into Klaviyo or whatever tool it is you're using to kind of keep track of your marketing events and you can see, okay, the email appeared in my database on this date and they opted in for, you know, you'll know whatever it is they opted in for because in order to deliver it, they get put into a specific list. And then two weeks later, they opted in for this live webinar. And they didn't buy there either, but now we have two data points. And the first one came from a Facebook ad, and the second one they did it through email. And then they bought the course two weeks later. So we can go back and say, hey, the effort we spent on Facebook brought in a brand new prospect, or maybe it warmed up an existing prospect who hadn't engaged with us in a while, and ultimately they ended up buying. Well, there's so many touch points, right, in marketing that you can't for 100% know that that person bought because they interacted with that ad. But you do know that you got them interested in the topic, you captured their data, and ultimately that was one of the steps that came for them to get to the place you wanted them to go ultimately, right? Buying the training, buying the Ford, buying the mattress. By breaking out your cycle, instead of saying, we need everything to happen in one go, you say, each campaign has a specific purpose, and I'm going to measure success based on that, getting the opt-in. And then at the end, when the purchase actually happens, I'll go back and give credit to whatever the initial data point is that kind of reinvigorated or brought them onto the list. So what I'm hearing you say is if you're selling a complex product like a course or a training or even a car, you need to have some sort of a free giveaway. Maybe it's a ebook or a guide or um, a sample training or something, right? And that's the thing that you use to put some money behind it with Facebook. And then once they get into that freebie, then you're going to nurture them with email recognizing the big picture that, hey, you wouldn't have had that customer if you didn't get them in there in the first place with that paid acquisition. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Exactly right. Yeah. You know, send them a paint swatch if you're a house painter or let them design their own car, right? They design the perfect Ford and then they give you their email address and you'll send a link to their inbox where they can like model it on a racetrack or see what it looked like in front of their house. It's just finding little unique ways to catch their attention uh, get their contact details and speak to them in a way that is not buy, 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 but is 
aren't you interested in this topic? Aren't you interested in learning about social media? Aren't you interested in seeing what kind of cars you can get today? Like, how would it look if you drove uh, a blue car with red flames on it? So you kind of focus less on the sale initially, which lets you be a lot less threatening, getting a much better rate to get somebody to opt in. And then you can go look further down the line and say, okay, we brought in a thousand new people with that. And out of them, eh, maybe only 20 of them bought. But because you're selling higher dollar products, that almost always covers the cost and then some. We just did a launch where we generated, like I said, about 8,000 leads. And out of them, I think only 30 or so bought. But the traffic more than paid for itself. We had something like a 30 or 40% uh, return on the investment we made there. Well, in those 8,000 leads, some of those people are going to turn into customers down, down the road, right? Exactly. So, John, this has been amazing. Uh, if people want to discover what you're doing over at Smart Marketer uh, or they want to reach out to you on the socials, uh, where do you want to send them? Yeah. So, per your suggestion, I set up smartmarketer.com forward slash SME. And I'm going to put on that link uh, a few free resources we have about iOS 14. If you want to go a little bit deeper, I'll also have a link to the Smart Marketer podcast with one of my favorite episodes for you to check out and links to my social media if you guys want to see what I'm up to on Instagram, which is usually not very much. I'm not as good at the uh, putting my business life on the on the socials, though I am working on it. <laughs> but it's probably the best way to stay in touch. Sweet. Smartmarketer.com slash SME. John Grimshaw, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I know that a lot of marketers have been struggling with this and you've given them a lot of guidance. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. This was a really, really fun episode to do. And I can't wait to see how all of you take this and use it to uh, get your Facebook game leveled up and working again. Hey, if you missed anything, we took the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 470. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. We've got a great lineup coming your way. And if you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.